John chapter 17. Turn with me to John chapter 17. I remember my pastor, as I was growing up, would preach this passage of Scripture, and he would say, I feel like I need to take off my shoes when I read this, because it's like we're standing on holy ground. I want you to understand something. In the prayer that Jesus prays in this passage of Scripture, He's praying for you. Almost by name. And we see the heart of our Lord for you. Let's stand together and read. I'm going to read a rather extended portion, so let's just, I, I just don't feel like there's a good place to start or stop. So, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son. That they, thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he, should be give, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou, hast, thou didst sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy, his joy, fulfilled in themselves, in you. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. 
thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but that for those which, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I want to come back to verse 15. We're going to focus on this. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon this particular message. It's an unusual one, but it's so important. Lord, I pray that you will give these young people wisdom that comes from your word and comes from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. One of the amazing things that, that Jesus has chosen to do, and God in his plan has chosen us to do, is to leave us in the world after our salvation. You are a Baptist college of ministry. There's a sense in which you're being isolated from the world. I mean, you don't have all the stuff that you could have had at home. You know what I'm talking about, all those, those worldly conduits of inputs that come into our life. Here we are, and this is, this is one of the great challenges to our sanctification. Jesus is praying for us with regard to this. We are supposed to be not of the world, but we are required to be in the world, which means that we have to make choices with regard to our relationship to the culture in which we live. You say, well, what we need to do, Pastor Shaw, and uh, you know, this is Baptist College of Ministry, we, have, we do this very well, we have just simply rejected the culture of the world. Well, no, you haven't. You say, how do I know that? Moses and John the Baptist and Jesus did not wear neckties. Is that not true? In fact, brother, I, I think there's a good chance that there will be no neckties in heaven. In fact, I think I can make a theological case for it because there will be no more tears. 
Now, they are not evil, but they are part of the culture in which we exist. And there's a reason why you're wearing them. Because they communicate something in this culture. And see, that's, that's one of the problems that we have, that, that God has left us in this world, and he has left us within a, within a culture, and a culture to which we have to communicate to that culture. We have to communicate God's goodness and God's richness and God's love, and they have to see in this culture who he is, and we have to understand how to do that. And as you go into various places in the world, there are different ways in which you're going to manifest the love and the goodness of God in a particular culture. And it won't necessarily be taking American culture around the world. Hudson Taylor understood that when he went to China in order to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ there. So as we go forward, you are going to have to make decisions about things that are happening in the culture, and that is going to be part of your sanctification, and that has to be, those decisions that you make have to be made on the foundation of the Word of God, led by the Holy Spirit, and you have to be convinced about what God wants you to do. And you're going to have to make some of those decisions yourselves. You say, well, what I'm, here's my plan. I'm going to get out wherever I go, and if I run into something where there's a problem, I can't quite figure it out, I'm going to call Dr. Jim and let him tell me what I'm supposed to do. Now, I understand that uh, he might have great wisdom, and he's, he's probably the the Mary Poppins of preachers, practically perfect in every way. <laughs> but he won't be around forever. One of the things I came to a realization about re recently was all my mentors are gone. The men who really helped me and mentored, for the most part, there's a couple that are still living, but even then the minds aren't the same sharpness that they were at one point. And I'm really realizing that there are others depending upon me the same way that I depended upon them. And all of a sudden there's this burden of responsibility upon my shoulders. And that burden, should the Lord tarry, that burden of responsibility for making decisions in a, in a new world. And, and we are facing things in the world that previous generations had no, they had no concept of things that they would face. Now, the early fundamentalists, there is, there, is, there is no early fundamental doctrine. You don't have the, the inspiration of the Bible and the virgin birth and the blood atonement. We had all of those things we, call, we defined as the, the fundamentals of the faith. None of the early fundamentalists put in there that marriage would be between one man and one woman. It was the farthest thing from their mind. It never crossed. In fact, it, it, through, through most, probably until about the year 2000, most of us didn't even think that this would be a possibility, that we would be facing issues like this. We're facing the issue that there's that someday you're going to be in a church in which somebody gets saved, okay? 
This person is going to get saved and they'll say, I used to be a man, but now I'm a woman. And what am I supposed to do about it? And we're going to have to face the culture. You're going to have to face the music issues of popular culture and the entertainment issues of popular culture because the world that you're reaching is inundated with it. Kenneth Myers in his book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, an interesting book, talks about the relationship of Christians to popular culture. And he, as he was talking to Christians, he said, now this is, I, wanted to, I want you to talk about your pop culture quotient, he called it. He's writing in the late 1980s, early 1990s, so it's still a long time ago. But he's, he said, I want you to just fill out a list, you know, um, all the different types of things that you have, TVs, computers, cell phones, iPods, DVDs, Blu-ray players, video games, internet devices, uh, cable receivers, radios in your car, CD players, magazine subscriptions, newspaper subscriptions, fiction books. All of these things are conduits by which the popular culture of the world makes its way into your life. All these are conduits in which the popular culture of the world, and, there's not, and it's not just popular culture, then there's the traditional culture and the high culture of the world and all of those things that start to make your way into your life, into your thinking. You have all different types of receivers. Now, I understand your Baptist College of Ministry would cut off a lot of those things for a period of time. But when you go home, they're probably there. And when you graduate from here and you go out, they're going to be there. And people and the people that you minister to are going to be filled with this stuff. So how is a Christian supposed to react to the culture that is around him? Well, traditionally, there have been three ways. The first way was this. Remember, Jesus said, I'm not going to take them out of the world, but they're not of the world. But the first way was this. Abstain from the culture. I will just completely abstain from the culture. You say, well, that's what we do. No, it isn't what you do. I went to seminary in Pennsylvania. Now there is a group of people that abstain from the culture. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Have you ever been there? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You pull into Walmart. It's, it's, they haven't completely abstained from the, the culture. They're shopping at Walmart. <laughs> Walmart's part of the culture, but I don't know if you've ever seen a black buggy in front of Walmart. I have seen that. They have the hay out there and the park the black buggies in front of Walmart, but they, you know, they're, they're, you have the Amish that are they're seeking to abstain from all of the culture. But what's very interesting is when you abstain from all the culture, you tend to create your own culture. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who was in York, Pennsylvania, and he was doing some visiting with some, you know, sharing the gospel with some of our Amish folks. And he knocked on a door and a fellow, they began talking, he began talking to this Amish man. And he, uh, they got talking about trains for some reason. This particular pastor, he, you know, he loved model trains. It's part of the culture. Okay, he loved mod model trains. And the, the Amish fellow's eyes got really big and he says, I gotta show you something. He walked him up to his attic, pulled back a rug and there was one electrical outlet in his house <laughs> that he used to run his model train set. What a terrible vice. There are times when what we want to do is abstain from the culture. The problem with abstaining from the culture is we never can fully do that. C.S. Lewis was teaching literature in England during World War II. 
And there were students that said this, how can we possibly study literature here while people are dying in the trenches over there? And here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you are not, in fact, going to read nothing, either in the church or on the front line. If you don't read good books, you will read bad ones. If you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. If you reject aesthetic satisfactions, those things that are beautiful, you will fall into sensual satisfactions. There is that aspect of learning to enjoy what is beautiful. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do that. I mean, we have, you hear, enjoy things that are beautiful. We listen to the beautiful music. I am sure not all of the music that you play is Christian music, but it is all beautiful music. You learn to understand what is good literature and what is bad literature, what is good writing and what is bad writing. That's one of the reasons that you have a college, to learn these things to learn how to use your gifts and abilities to the best, uh, those gifts and abilities to, the, to the, their best possible use for, for the Lord. We cannot abstain completely from the culture. Now, I am not talking about partaking of worldliness. When we talk about worldliness, we're talking about the sinfulness of the culture in which we exist. Another reaction to the culture that Christians have done in the past is to Christianize it. And what they've said is this, well, you know, you have this stuff in the culture that is bad, but we like it, so let's make a Christian version of it, right? And so you have worldly, sinful rock music, and what do you do? You create Christian rock music. You have, you have worldly nightclubs, you create Christian nightclubs. You have world, this, this is, literally has happened over the past, especially over the past 30 years. You have, um, let, let's see, Christian, you, you have, instead of worldly no, soap operas, you have Christian soap operas, Christian spy novels, Christian romance novels, Christian exercise videos, and thus we have succeeded. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Thus, we end up with a Christianity that imitates the culture around us. Kenneth Myers put it like this, we remove ourselves from the culture, but then create an equally sinful Christian culture. And what we have done, here's what he said, we have succeeded in being of the world, but not in the world instead of in the world, but not of the world. And God requires you to be in the world, but not of the world. And so what is our biblical response? Well, God didn't leave us without instructions regarding how to respond to the culture. We need to and this is the, the third choice, is evaluate the, the, the culture. When Paul spoke to the church at the church of Thessalonians, the Thess, uh, at Thessalonica, he said, prove 
all things. By the way, let's just take a look at that particular passage of Scripture. It's, a, it's an important passage, passage of Scripture, and we'll come, we'll come back to it a little bit later. <clears throat> it's um, found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's what he says, prove or test all things. Hang on, hold fast to that which is good. The way um, verse 22 is often misapplied. Here's what he says, he says, prove all things, hang on to the good stuff, get rid of the evil stuff. Okay, let's look at verse 2. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. He is not saying... I hate to burst anybody's bubble. He is not saying in that verse, abstain from anything that looks like it kind of might be evil. He is saying, abstain from evil wherever it appears. Prove it. Hang on to the good stuff. Get rid of the bad stuff. In other words, you, by means of the Word of God and by means of the Holy Spirit, are going to be required as part of your sanctification to evaluate everything that comes into your life to see whether it is pleasing to Him or not. Now, let's talk about evaluate. How do we evaluate? Let's talk about, first of all, some, okay, so some false method, methods of evaluation. Here is this song or this piece of music or this certain particular style of music. And we say, okay, how are we going to evaluate it? Well, there, here's some false standards of evaluation. Here's the one that most young people like today. I, I like to call it the standard of like. If I like it, it's good. If I don't like it, it's bad. And would you not say that is, that is how most of the people in the world today discern whether they want or will allow something in their life or not? In fact, isn't that how Facebook works? <laughs> Facebook, here are my likes. This is who I am. I like these things. I find it shocking sometimes what some Christian people put on their likes on Facebook. Now, there's a problem with the standard of like. Why? I am desperately wicked. Kenneth Myers, again in his book, put it this way. Some young men like to help little old ladies walk across the street. Some young men like to mug little old ladies <laughs> as they cross the street. Not all like is the same. I want you to think about that for a, mo for a moment. Um, the standard of like, here's what, the standard of like is this. I have to ask myself this question. What is it in me that likes this? This, for instance, this music, what part of me is this appealing to? 
Is it appealing to my flesh and my baser instincts? Or is it appealing to that spiritual part of me which longs after God? And isn't it fascinating how we want to take the words of truth and marry them to the medium of the flesh? We use the standard of like or the standard of popularity. 95% of doctors or 95 out of 100 doctors recommend this or do this or whatever. Um, the standard of popularity, well, if, the, if most people like it, then it must be good. I remember, it was a number of years ago, <clears throat> the Pope was coming to the United States. Now, I am going to quote the Pope favorably here. Just, I want you to be careful. The Pope was coming to the United States and American media, like they do, began polling Roman Catholics to see whether priests should be allowed to marry or not. And so you saw all the statistics, you know, 65% of Roman Catholics or 75% of Roman Catholics thought whether, you know, were describing whether they should, whether the, whether priests should be allowed to be married or not. And so uh, they presented the statistics to the Pope and the Pope said this, God is not elected. Now, I happen to disagree whether priests could be married or not, but I do think what he, what he did say is true. It doesn't matter what everybody thinks. The only percentage that we're looking for in the decisions that we make with regard to the things that we allow into our lives, with regard to the popular culture, is the 100% percentage, and that is, is God 100% in favor of it or not? The... the the only vote that matters is his. Now, which means, I want you to think about this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5, servants, be obedient unto them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart to Christ. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now here's the danger, You're the popularity thing. You say, well, well popularity, of course, I'm, I'm most important. I, I, I'm, I'm most concerned about what God thinks about what I do. Are you sure? Or are you more concerned about what your classmates think about what you do? How about, are you more concerned about what Dr. Jim thinks about what you do? or Pastor Wayne Van Geldren. There are young people, maybe even in this room, that will graduate from school here, go someplace, get married, life circumstances will begin to change, and how you live in the world will start to change. 
and the standards that you are living by now, you'll begin to alter them. And it will come to the point where you, where you will look back to this moment with bitterness in your hearts. And I could ask the preachers to name the ones who've already gone there and they will tell you. There's a sense of bitterness and there's a sense of anger. And I will tell you one of the core problems for why they're there now started when they were here. And that's when they were here, instead of being God-pleasers, they were men-pleasers. And they looked for their approval and their satisfaction and their sense of well-being and their sense of being right in the world to godly men who have sincere hearts instead of to the God of the godly men. Our goal as pastors, our goal of spiritual leaders in, in Jesus Christ is not to get you to follow us. It's to get you to follow him. It's to get you to please him. Now, I want you to notice in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the what? From the heart. Okay, let, I, I, I'll ask Brother Wayne this. If you and I disagree about something, and I am convinced that God wants me to do something, one way, and I don't do it in order to please you, is there a problem with my heart? I can do what he wants and be in sin. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason and be in sin. See, th what this means is, I, I, and I, I hear people all the time, I remember we're talking about standards. This coming Sunday night in our church, we have what we call our vision night. So we take the Sunday night and we go over leadership standards, requirements for leadership in our church. We talk about our goals for the coming year. We, we talk about child protection policies and things like that. And as I go over the leadership standards, um, there were people that will come up to me and they say, okay, well you said that this particular thing isn't a leadership standard, but this thing, and they'll start asking, now can I do this or can I do this? And they're wanting me to set their personal standards for them in some nuanced area of their Christian life. And I remember one particular thing I said, that we are not requiring this of all leadership. I will tell you that in my personal life and my family, we don't do this. Had to, had to do with an entertainment issue. And they came up and said, so you're saying I can do this? I said, wait a minute. I just said for myself and my family, we don't do that. So it would be foolish for me to tell you, I am giving you permission to do it. Oh, so you're saying that I shouldn't do it. <laughs> they wanted me to be their Holy Spirit. And there are some times as a pastor, I purposely force them to get on their knees before God and determine before Him what He wants for them. It's not my job to tell you everything. Because if it is, 
there will be a day when I'm gone. And if you're doing it just to please me, you're wrong. You need to do it to please him. The standard of like, the standard of popularity. There are also other standards. Americans, we like mathematical standards. If it's bigger, it's stronger, it's faster. Some sort of a statistical evaluation makes everything perfect. If it's the biggest church, if it's the fastest growing church, it must be the best church. We used to think that in the 1970s when the biggest, fastest growing churches were fundamental churches, but now that it's charismatic churches, we've changed our philosophy. Sometimes a false method of evaluation is the familiar. It's good because I'm familiar with it. I'm comfortable with it. I like it. I want to hang on to it. Can I just remind you of something? Sin is comfortable. Sin is easy at times. Another false method of evaluation, especially with the arts, is the whims of the muses. The architect will, or the artist will say, you know, I just, the muses just overtook me. And it's just what came out. You, you, those of you who understand, the, you know the artist type of people that, you know, have that kind of thinking. Where there's no real evaluation. It's, it's pure emotion. It's, it's often mystical, maybe even sometimes demonic. Of course, we have a Christian version of that, and that's the whims of the spirit. It's the, the Holy Spirit told me. This happens commonly in charismatic circles. You know, the Spirit told me to write this song, just this ray. It has all kinds of false doctrine in the song. The Holy Spirit didn't tell you to write it. And he didn't tell you to write it in that style in a way that is, is pleasing to God and will blame things upon the Holy Spirit. Hides from evaluation. It's unbiblical. So there are some direct texts that we have to have with regard to evaluating the culture, because we have to live in this world, and God is going to require you to use your brains and read the Word and consider the Word and prayerfully observe the Word and apply the Word to your life and be led by the Holy Spirit. And part of Christian maturity is going to be learning to do that for, for yourself. That doesn't mean you don't seek the advice of godly counselors. Because the Holy Spirit works in them too. But that doesn't, but we are Baptists. And one of the things that Baptists believe in is individual soul liberty and responsibility. You know what individual soul liberty and responsibility means? You cannot say, I was just following orders. That's Catholic. In Roman Catholicism, the priest will say, listen, you just do what we tell you to do and you'll be okay. Because as long as you're following the chain of command, everything is all right. But Baptists do not believe that. We believe, according to the word of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and allows us as individuals to discern the word of God. And therefore, every one of us will stand accountable before God and give account for the choices that we make in our lives and you won't be able to blame your decision on Dr. Jim or Pastor Wayne.
you better make sure it's right before God. So how do we make those decisions? Just a couple of those. I made my primary point here, but we'll just talk. Well, how do we make the decisions? Well, there are some direct texts, Philippians 4, 8. How to discern, discern God has not left us. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, <laughs> whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, beautiful, what sort of things are good report? If there be any virtue, if there any be, be any praise, think, meditate on these things. Isn't it interesting? What sort of things are true? The greatest purveyor of lies of the last century until today has been Walt Disney. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Everything your heart desires will come to you. In what world is that true? <laughs> Why is it we lie to our children constantly? Whatsoever things are, are, are honest, Whatsoever things are just, we understand these things, noble, just, righteous, whatsoever things are pure, they're, un, they're unmixed, whatsoever things are beautiful. Did you know that God is a God of beauty? <laughs> I know it, I live in Arizona. There's a magazine, I don't know if they're still publishing it, I assume they do, Arizona Highways. Anybody ever seen an Arizona Highways magazine? sent all over the world. But there are some beautiful places in our state. And it's interesting, and it's God's handiwork. Have you ever noticed something about the colors of creation? They never clash. Now, some of you clash. <laughs> God is a God of beauty. God loves what is beautiful. You stand on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and the beauty is overwhelming. You know, there's no photograph, no picture that can possibly express it. We had evangelist Steve Pettit with us years ago and his, uh, Terry was trying to convince him to go to the canyon and he didn't want to go. And so he did an overseas trip and she stayed behind with the team and they went up to the canyon. They came back. He came back from the trip and she said, we're going up there again. He says, why do I want to go up there? It's just a hole in the ground. And then I talked to him afterwards. He said, what a hole. It's beautiful. You know, up in the mountains of Colorado someplace. Buried beneath the snow as a little seed. And then as the spring comes and the snow melts, that little seed is really going to, it's going to germinate and take root. And as the snow melts and the sun begins to shine, the, the, it's going to sprout into this wildflower. Somewhere around July, August, the little flower is going to expand and there's going to be a whole 
hillside full of those flowers. And it's going to be in some remote place that no, no human being will ever step foot throughout the summer and no human eyes will, will feast upon that site. And yet it's still there. Why is it there? For his pleasure. Because God is a God of beauty and he loves things that are beautiful. We have First Peter. So we have this passage of scripture. We have other passages of scripture that give us indications about how to make the decisions that we need to make in the world in which we live. First, first Peter chapter one. Start in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Hope to the end for the grace that is be brought, to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in all aspects of, the, of your life. Because it is written, Behold, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if he, if ye call on the Father, who without respect to persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Pass the, by the way, the idea of fear is reverence. One of the things that is missing from American Christianity is a sense of reverence. And not just reverence and worship, also, although it is definitely missing there. Reverence in every area of life. Now, reverence does not preclude sorrow. And reverence does not preclude joy. But reverence seeks to deeply understand who God is and understand that, I, that every step I take in this life, every breath that I breathe, every word that I speak, he sees and knows. And he will hold me accountable. And if you call on the Father, who without respect to persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with trinkets. You were not redeemed with gold and silver. You were not re redeemed with corruptible things, trinkets like gold and silver, from your empty lifestyles received by tradition from your fathers. But what you were redeemed with, what you were redeemed by, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I now, as a blood-bought child of God, need to interact with this culture in a, in a way that reflects the fact that I am his precious possession. In the world, but not of the world. Here's some questions to ask as we start looking at things in the world around us. 
We'll just finish with this. Does God address this thing that I'm considering in Scripture? If so, what does He say? We can use the principles of Scripture to address such issues as dress, alcohol, music, male-female relations, talk, conversation, entertainment, and many more issues addressed specifically in Bible passages. Another question that I ask, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, how does this affect my thinking? It's interesting. There are some personalized questions here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for unto me, but all things are not expedient, are not useful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. How does this affect my thinking? How does this thing affect my spiritual life? Does this reflect the, the order of the creator in his creation? Um, those whatsoever things are beautiful. I, it's interesting. Beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder. That's not true. Beauty is in the eye of the creator. Does this reflect the, the order of creation and the beauty of God's creation? Is the form of this thing appropriate to its content and intent? In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, we have the story of the establishment of the Samaritan worship under Jeroboam. Now, it's interesting what Jeroboam did with the Samaritan worship. He wanted the children of Israel to worship Jehovah. He was not trying to abandon the worship of Jehovah. What he wanted to do was to change the place and the mode of the worship of Jehovah. And so golden calf worship, and that's what he set up, golden calf worship was supposed to be a substitute, a, a way of worshiping Jehovah by proxy. Listen, you cannot change the mode without destroying the message. God wants to be worshipped, and he wants to be worshipped in a certain way. I remember people, when, one fellow I was in seminary, or she wasn't in seminary, it was Bible college, Greek class, he was talking about different modes of baptism. How many modes of immersion can you have? <laughs> There's only one mode of immersion. And see, if I mess up the teaching picture, I mess up the doctrine. The picture is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You lose the teaching picture when you sprinkle or you pour. You miss it all together. And the point of it is the theology, the teaching picture. So God cares not only about the message, He cares about the mode, because the mode and the message are intertwined with one another. How will, this, how will my doing this impact others? The Apostle Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. I have to be careful how my choices impact the walk of others. Why? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no room for a selfish Christianity. 
does this thing enslave me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, all things are not expedient, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The alcohol, the marijuana, that, by the way, that's the thing that the young people are talking about now. That for the Christians who are buying into alcohol, they're total hypocrites when they tell their kids they can't do, do pot. become addicted under the power of. Does this thing distract or entangle me? You know, it is interesting that there are good things, things that aren't necessarily intrinsically evil, but they're a problem for me. Why? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, And thou, uh, um, thou therefore, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. This is one of the reasons why debt is a sinful problem for many believers, especially those who are going into ministry, because it entangles you and keeps you from doing the things that God has called you to do. There are other things that entangle you as well. Some other questions, is this thing purposefully irreverent? <laughs> I wrote an article a number of, oh, probably about a year ago on the subject of Christian comedy. Some of you have heard, you know who Tim Hawkins is. Some of you know who he is. Christ, fundamental Baptists don't go to Tim Hawkins concerts. They watch him on YouTube. You know what I'm talking about. I remember one concert. He had done this at Liberty University. And he started talking about the names of God. And he, he started, we're here, I forgot how he said it, he, but he talked about, he, he took the, the lamb and made a bot, lamb. And I thought to myself, he's making a joke. out of the term, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. I'm all for having fun. I'm all for laughing. But there are some things that should never be the subject of comedy. Is this thing unkind or unloving? Christian comedy goes this way too, makes fun of people. In an unkind, unloving way, treats people as dumb and foolish and unworthy. This is just a start. You're going to have to think for yourself. You're going to have to decide for yourself. You cannot go into your future just as man pleasers, even if the people you are trying to please are really good people. You're in the world, but don't be of the world. And don't be of the world but not in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do your work. <clears throat> and our heart